after the show, why not relax with an egg and a pint in Pigby's Restaurant, just nine minutes' walk from this podcast. Enjoy two different types of egg dish with lashings of wine, beer and spirits as you relax with the sounds of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on 10 in the background. There's the soft-boiled option to complement the gallons of booze that's been consumed throughout, or maybe delight in a hard-boiled egg to go with all the effing and jeffing. And why not try both for that truly egg-bound feeling of getting easily researchable facts wrong on mic? It's all go at Pigby's Restaurant. Proprietor again is just waiting to take your order and have you seated in under half an hour. Remember, there's no money back if you haven't paid for it yet. Good things come to lose your weight and so do the crap ones. So for all your culinary ovoid and culturally devoid hankerings, you can't not get no better than Pigby's. 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 Opening hours, licensing terms, food availability and podcast choice, also picture availability. Written terms available on request. No correspondence will be entered into. We open Oh with, with with a lot of excitement here. Yes. What a what a what a musical score. Isn't it? I mean Good gracious. Why didn't the Mercedes just stop and transfer it into a third car? Literally right. nobody is watching. No, not even <laughs> yeah. the audience. And of course yes. remember, Val Guest started his directing career in the early nineteen forties. Yeah. So he would have seen lots of changes, and it's quite clear, taken not a blind fucking bit of notice of them. <laughs> Exit! Stage left! Are you all right? Hello and welcome to the Peggy Mount Sunday Matinee Hour. I'm Dr. Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here, poised in front of a Ferguson video star to see the cinema on the small screen. To help us along on our televisual journey this week is the irrepressible Aussie Bognops. How are you, my good man? A hearty good afternoon to you, gentlemen. I'm very well, and yourselves? Well, all right, all right. Yes, hello you, and thanks for swinging by for this slipshod, salacious scrutiny of small screen cinema, because there's now on the telly, so producer Ken's been down the video shop to rent out the latest blockbuster. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and gubbins for the film we're discussing is in the show notes there, plus you can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or suggest things you'd like us to watch and then complain about. And before we try to run two enterprises at once, fail at both, and only manage to save our skins with a combination of blithe incompetence and blind luck, gentlemen, I've got to ask, what are we drinking? I mean, once again, I'm on brand. Vodka and Panda Cola. Oh, Panda. Is it warm? Panda Cola, right, helped me out with my first hangover, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so, yes, it's warm. Yeah. And, and and it's flat. Perfect. And, yes, and if I remember rightly, it was warm, flat Panda Cola and eight Greg sausage rolls. <laughs> Living the dream in 1989, <laughs> me. Living the dream. It's basically anyway, just like the soda stream syrup without any of the fizzy water in. <laughs> Pretty much. Or gravy granules, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 going down well. It's going down well. Mr Bognobs, what about yourself? Port. It's a cheeky little number, this one. It's called Infirmier de Nuit, and it has quite nice. an ethereal taste. 
I imagine. Is that the one where you pull the cork out and it plays the theme tune to Dr. Kildare? Yes, it does. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems to be mixed with Juliet Bravo. And for some inexplicable reason, I can't hear one without hearing the other. What a remix. What a side effect. What an actress. <laughs> yeah. And, and Mr. Blackout. Uh, well, this afternoon, I've got a bottle of Porth Pilsner by the St. Ice Brewery. Best enjoyed ice cold, which means I'm going to have to neck this in double time. An approach which I suspect we are all going to be taking today. I think you yeah. could be right. <laughs> so, gentlemen, it is time to move on. Let's be avenue as we expose ourselves to one of the last examples of a dying trend. And that is adapting successful small screen comedy to big screen cash in. Twang your braces. Let's rock on, Thomas. Boys in Blue is a 1982 British comedy film written and directed by Val Guest, giving LWT favourites Cannon and Ball their big screen debut. As well as our elastic spanging heroes, Guest has used his old-school entertainment connections to recruit genre stalwarts Eric Sykes, Jack Douglas, Arthur English, Roy Kinnear, John Pertwee and rising star Suzanne Danielle. In a small coastal village in Dorset, Sergeant Tommy Cannon and Constable Bobby Ball run a police station so quiet and crime-free it's on the verge of closure. Deciding to stage a theft to justify their own existence, the pair instead uncover an international art smuggling racket and have a greater battle with their own comic ineptitude to save the day. Now, despite a cinematic run in the United Kingdom, the popularity of its stars and additional material from their longtime writer Sid Green, the film performed middlingly, a reputation it continues to hold to this day, and it saw our central pair redeployed to the small screen on a permanent basis. Why did the chicken cross the road? I don't know. Why did the chicken cross the road? To get away from the television that was shown this. <laughs> Close. It was on location while they were filming this, so it fucked right off in the other direction. <laughs> so first things first, <clears throat> have any of us ever watched this film before? Yes. Never. Yes. Oh. I oh. have seen it on television, appropriately enough. We weren't that mad about Cannon and Ball in our house. Right. But it was on, and if memory serves, it was on at the unusual time of 830 so it allowed an hour and a half for this pus to seep through every pore of my body before news at 10 and I went to bed. Um, so, yes, I do remember seeing it, and I had the same feeling watching it now, um, re-evaluing it, uh, as, as in those very halcyon days. Marvellous. I remember it being advertised. I remember the trailers for it. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. I remember there was a big sort of buzz about it at the time. Um... I do remember Cannon and Ball singing the theme tune on their show. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And the theme tune, for whatever reason, it's always stuck in my head. I've always known, we're the boys in blue. That's always stuck with me for whatever reason. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen this before, but I do remember there was a huge sort of cardboard standee of it on the uh, on the first land and foyer in Newcastle Odeon when I went to see Return yes. of the Jedi. Yes, I remember that. Absolutely, that cardboard cutout. Now, that was in... June of 1983. Boys in Blue mm. had been out for nine months at that point. I'd be surprised if the film had been playing for that long. <laughs> Without snapping in the projector, I would have to say. 
Um, it is, of course, a loose rewrite of Marcel Varnell's 1939 comedy, Ask a Policeman, presumably getting away with the homage because director Val Guest uh, was a co-writer on that original film. And was one of the team that helped make Will Hayes' comedies of the time sparkle yeah. and shimmer and, and glitter and be fantastic and launch Hay into total stardom. I Unlike would imagine this. it's that past success, that, which means he's been handed the money for this. Well, it's his, it's, it was also his last directing um, job. Yeah, it would have been mine as well. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. We open, oh, with, with with a lot of excitement here. Yes. What a what a what a musical score, isn't it? I mean, good gracious, it is a bit like sort of. The generation game conveyor belt, and Ed Welsh has been told, "Right, you've got three hundred quid. Throw the fucking lot at it, son." Yep. Absolutely, yep. and and he does. It's about three hundred percent more showbiz than it needs to be for a film like yep. this. But still, yep. yeah, say what you like about this film, and I intend to. <laughs> the soundtrack is fucking glorious. Well, it's it's incredible. It's like the professionals at a disco. But gentlemen, you say that, and I look at it from this perspective. Um, there's basically three setups that involve this mighty orchestra playing this high-paced, high-octane music, and the rest of the film's fucking silence. So the money must yep. have run out. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the the opening scenes are indeed a heist. We get to see a heist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in action, and part of the the heist involves, of course, they steal some paintings, and there's a bit of a switcheroo. Yep. And um, a Mercedes, an estate Mercedes, is blue, but then it goes through the car wash, and it's now white. I thought, well, yeah, okay, all yeah, right, yeah. get that. And then it's clagged with stickers. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, I've got, I've got and I thought, notes about this, yes. <laughs> well, I thought, now hang on, there's not a one, there's not a one ambulance. It's clagged with stickers to make it look like an ambulance. A Mercedes estate car. I thought, there's not no such thing. I know. You yeah, know there no. is. Is there? No, there is. I looked it up. It was in, in, in the 1980s, it was part of the London ambulance fleet. There oh, was yeah. an estate Mercedes used because I was up in arms about this. <laughs> the London Ambulance Service in Dorset. Yes. Which is also somewhere, <laughs> somehow near um, Humberside and appears to be also near Lancashire as well. Yeah, Where is filmed... this bloody place? It's like Esher. It was filmed all over the place. It's amazing. One of the key places that it was filmed at, because they thank the people in the credits, thanks to the people of Eaton Bray. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Now, indeed. now, Eaton Bray is in Bedfordshire, and I have a particular affinity with that place because my mum was born there and grew up there. Never in the world. That's where she. Um, that's where she learned the honky tonk piano, isn't it? Yes, it is. She learned that and electric chess. Um, electric. But, uh, <laughs> she. She. Um, yeah. But so. So hats off for Eaton Bray's involvement. Absolutely, all the way. There you go. I wonder if the car wash was in Eaton Bray. But interestingly for me, this is also one of those setups where Ed Welsh has thrown the lot at the score. Yep. Although it does rather sound like B-roll offcuts from Magnum. If I'm honest, that's still fine. So before they get the um, before they get the stolen paintings into this Mercedes, mm. it it should be pointed out that they steal them in a bin lorry. Yes, they do. They do. So they you know they've got a, a bunch of thieves in 
early 1980s leisure wear. The pattern around this was it's kind of like a stately home, something you know, it's sort of like a manor house. The pattern yeah. around that, mm-hmm. taking the paintings <coughs> out the frames, stick them into some hold holes and whatnot, into the back of a bin lorry because that won't be detected driving around in the early hours of the morning. Then they stop off somewhere and they transfer them over to the Mercedes. Which takes a bit too long for the music, I think. <laughs> but then the Mercedes goes, yeah, goes through this car wash. There's like some kind of chemicals in the paint, so it changes colour. Why didn't the Mercedes just stop and transfer it into a third car? Literally right. nobody is watching. No, not even <laughs> yeah, the audience. True, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And then, obviously, at this point, Ed Welsh, who, as you might understand, I've got a, got a bit of a bag on about, um, <laughs> then decides to just abandon the orchestra and just have drums. And all of a sudden, we have the theme to Crime Watch. You know, crime Watch uh-huh. comes to the car wash. Heaven forbid. And they stick all the sticker stuff on, and they do all that. Surely they have the time to actually unscrew the number plates rather than just stick ones over the top. Yeah. Yeah, they could have yeah, the- done that while it was in the actual car wash building. I don't know. Yeah, it, it seems overly elaborate. Like I say, considering no one is noticing this happening. But I tell you what, as openings go, it's quite strong. And the first ten it minutes, is. the first ten minutes is definitely a heist movie. The first ten minutes is definitely about all of the film I could stand before me brain zoned out. <laughs> well, the just like the escape car in a in a chase. Um, the brakes are slammed on and we find ourselves presented with PC's cannon and ball causing utter hell on in the town centre as a, as a result of their own ineptitude. Yeah, they're basically frankly. just shouting at each other in a traffic jam yeah. in the home county somewhere. Yeah. Indeed. With a woman with big gaps um, who clearly has mumps. <laughs> right? <laughs> she has. So the one, there is one positive... Um, aspect of this little routine that's going on, mm-hmm. and that is that we see Billy Burden uh, Billy playing the farmer Burden. as he as he usually does, yeah. um, shouting. He always shouts. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not a case of um, where are the cows? They're over there. No, no, Billy Burden. Where are the cows? They're over there. <laughs> All the time, in everything he does. Absolutely brilliant. I love the man. I love the man. He, so he, how he's can this great. village be therefore classified as quiet and peaceful if uh, he's well, just walking around shouting at everybody all day and the cows? Terrible. You see, the part he's playing in this is v- exact to the part he plays in Grace and Favour, the follow-up series to Are You Being Served? I'd love to think it's the same character. Must be on his business card. <laughs> Plays noisy farmers that shout a lot. They ain't doggies, them cows. I know that, you stupid farmer. Why didn't you take them up the motorway? It's wider. Ah, but little bottom market's up there. I'd love to think he is attending to the cattle that belong to this large estate that the staff of Grace Brothers, some, <laughs> I don't know, 13 years later, inherit. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. love that. Billy Burden, Shouting Farmer, care of Shouting Farmer Management Limited. But well, you would it. have to be like that living in that village just to make yourself heard over the police. Well, yes. You've and never heard a the... racket like it. <laughs> and also it's the woman true. with big gaps who's clearly got mumps sitting in the jeep with a boat on it. That's <laughs> right. Now, I will say... Uh, when things get when they clear up this little bit, um, they're driving in their in their car, our cannon and ball. And do you know what, Bognops? You mentioned Juliet Bravo earlier. I mm-hmm. did. 
and there's a reason for that because well this mini metro yeah every yeah. film in this car was made by british leyland and i guess it was a last gasp of look we can still make cars like this as well as films like this again were the police using navy blue mini metros in 1982 no, they were using they were using metros, but they weren't navy blue. Right. Because Julia Bravo had one, and it was white. Yeah, right. but we had Vauxhall Vivas where we were. Yeah, we did. But, yeah, that little mini metro. And Cannon and Ball are doing their bit for the community because they've got sod all else going on, so right. they're delivering fish and chips to the fishermen. How come Cannon and Ball's character names in this are just Cannon mm. and Ball? Is that because I the mean... director couldn't get the stars' heads around them using anything else? Or is it a veiled insult to like an intended audience so thick that they'd have a seizure trying to recognise him using different names. Ah, well, you say that, but in The Intelligence Men, which was made in the 60s, like this feels like it fucking has been, um, Mortman Wise were in it. It was one of their main... It was their first of three films for rank, and Ernie played Ernie Sage, and Eric played Eric Morecambe. It's like Sid James and the Carry On films. That's right. Yeah, it's it's retaining that persona. Um yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd sort of like I give a bit more leeway to Eric and Ernie and the Carry On films. I think by this time we're fifteen minutes in, and it's evident to me. I don't know how you two feel, but it's evident to me that a lot of the comedy material has been lifted from script offcuts of Benny Hill and Robin Asquith's Confessions of series. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Although I did do a tiny little bit of rabbit hole and watched Ask a Policeman, and right. there are some setups which are word for word the same. Okay. Except they Ooh, involve right. three people, and these mm -hmm. involve two. But as a, as a result so you, of that, I do find myself asking the Doctor's favourite question, is the war on? Right. Because it feels like 1936. <laughs> it looks like 1936. Well, this is it, It sounds like 1936. Cannon and Ball running the Little Bottom Village store. It's spelt <coughs> Little Botham, but it's pronounced Little Bottom. That's a joke, apparently. Um, they're running the village store, as well as the police station. How come the shop premises have all the ambience and the stock levels of a plywood prison cell, and yet there's a dedicated Lego display stand behind them? I mean, there's no Lego on it. it. It looks like a selection of floral jigsaws, but at some point, that shop has sold Lego, and you're like, who to? Yeah. A, a bit of a, a chauvinist edge to the humour we find in this, um, but Ozzy, you completely touched on my, the, my point there about the feel of the film. Mm. The qu the quieter scenes where there's just the two of them chatting away. Yeah. The sound quality and the pace. This could be 1946. It could. It could. Um, I mean, I I have to say. The words that I write in capitals, the very next line I write in my notes here, are they speak like it's written down. And they really do. It is typewritten script acting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, nowhere more obvious than the beautiful Suzanne Danielle, of course. Yeah. But it just really... You know, there's only a few fleeting moments where it feels that it's not like that, and that is when Cannon and Ball are doing their act, basically. Yes, 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 yes. This is the thing, there seems to be this huge line between a very sort of staid, read the script, film the script, start, stop, done, and yeah, they're basically doing their, like, the little ticks and flourishes of their double act. Now, this yep. works well when it's confined to a TV set on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. It falls mm -hmm. spectacularly on its arse when there's no audience reaction in the room. 
Especially yes, they when do. they have to turn the gain on the microphones up so loud when <laughs> Callan always grabs him by the lapel because yeah. that's because yeah. normally that would there would be a huge gale of laughter at that point and there yeah. just isn't. So we have to hear mm. the the sort of bodily comedy, if you like. You sort of have to imagine that you were in the audience in Newcastle in 1982 as the roof raised with the laughter. As the story rumbles on, you mentioned turning up the gain on the mic. I wish somebody had turned up the lights. Yes, absolutely, I've got that. Because I'll tell you something, the story dictates that they have to sneak into an outhouse. Mm -hmm. I can't see a bat. I can't see a thing. What's what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what I can see. Boys in blue. Boys in the black dark. That's what this is. I'll tell you what I can see, though, Doctor. One padlock. Apparently that holds everything locked shut. One padlock. <laughs> right. One brand yeah. new shiny padlock. That's the yeah. only thing. That was the brightest thing in the fucking scene. Mm. Also, Mr. Welsh crops up with his uh, delights here. The night surveillance music sounds like promotional music for an ITV programme trailer. And coming up next. I'm fine. I'm fine with this. Again, it's the music. I'm loving it. I don't mind it, but I just think they have two massive neon signs that keep needing to be lowered into shot. One says <laughs> bungling, and one says farce. Yep. Yes. Yep. Oh, oh we'll get to the to the, the farce element that, that really ticked me off later on. We get to half an hour in before the story emerges about the police station being closed down. That's meant yes. to be like a, a central tentpole of what's going on here. It's 30 minutes before this is even mentioned. I've got 36. I counted right. 36. And my, my exact words were 36 minutes in, frig all has happened. So it's like a typical British film at this point. It's also at this point that Roy Kinnear makes his first appearance, acting like he's doing a morning's filming as a favour. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. And just before that, we have the one rude joke in the film when the shelf collapses after he's reassembled it. And the first thing he says <clears throat> uh, is, oh, sugar. And the corner of my mouth turned up a millimetre for a nanosecond. So I would need it to be right. reprinted. I did this. smile at the shelf collapsing. I thought that was like possibly the most yeah. organised thing in the entire film. I like that. But as you say, when Royston Kinnear and Holdings Limited turns up, all of a sudden the comedy goes up into third gear. Not of an Austin Metro, obviously, but um But it was always this thing about their TV show where they need that one other person, that one other guest for them yeah. to bounce off of. That's right. That's right. Because when it's just the pair of them, that's not... I think we've covered this in previous episodes. It's not quite enough. So, <laughs> A couple of things no. came to my attention. I like the Bucks Fizz adamant joke. I thought, you know, very of its time. Didn't mm-hmm. sort of push yep. it a bit yep. like that. And the other thing is that clearly the butler can't shift the telly because he starts to push it as it's just moving out of shot. And you can tell uh-huh. that he actually... It's solid. It, it, it's yes. not going to move anywhere. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> All right, so Bucks Fizz is drank. The boys go back to the police station, and John Pertwee turns up. Yes, yes. yeah, as and the lead. Coast Guard. Indeed, what a cracking performance! I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed his performance in it. Um, yeah, he brings in, he just wheels in some heavy-handed plot device about putting a lamp on top of the station flagpole or something. I watched that oh, scene yeah, three times, and I couldn't work out what the fuck they were going on about. Yeah, I wondered that. Yeah, and then he comes back again fifteen minutes later. And films a shorter version of the same scene, but with the lights off because it's night time. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's something about this. What's the bloody time frame of this film? <laughs> he was drunk that afternoon, and all of a sudden he's stone-cold sober, running around <laughs> like an idiot, had a headache, didn't have a headache. You know, is this all taking place in 24 hours? Is Jack Bauer going to turn up with a Nokia phone that never loses its charge? Is that I what's going to ju- happen? I will next? just remind you again that 
this is precisely what a director is responsible for to make sure yeah. everything hangs together between scenes. <laughs> and talking of hanging together between scenes, that I noticed that the continuity girl goes uncredited on IMDb uh, from the film. Funny that, can't think why. But also, <laughs> Smuggler's Cove, is this fucking Enid Blyton? I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Don't, because they got the camera set up at, um, yeah, at Lulworth Cove there in Dorset, and they basically left it there for 12 hours to get plenty of establishing shots... Again, just feel for the crew who stood there, did that, and they had the most calm, peaceful time of, of yeah. any member of crew on this film. Yeah. And then somebody said, could you do the same 12 hours with a night filter on as well? It, yeah, it kind of looked like they gave it some kind of ready break glow at some point. I think that yeah. was meant to have been done in post, but it looks like there's been a, an accident developing the film. So we get to just over halfway through the film. Don't and we? Uh, Cannon and Ball have just uncovered the actual art theft plot. Not uncovered yeah. the where, how, or who. No. That they, the police, remember they've just noticed that it's happening. Yes. This is like yeah. one of the producers leaning in, going, "You, you remember what this film's meant to be about, right? It's not just yeah. them two bickering like they're on telly, right? Crack on, do that." Uh, ah. <laughs> with a convenient trapdoor in the middle of the uh, station house. Yeah. Yeah, that they've yeah, never just seen before. Yes. <laughs> to be honest, though, to be honest, I'm not surprised they hadn't seen it before because these are two grown men who, when driving along a country lane at night in the black dark, see two lights ahead of them. Yeah. And unlike most most of us who've got a grasp on our life, mm-hmm. they do not interpret these lights as a typical emergency services vehicle. Like the one which they drive right. for the organisation for which they work. The fuck? Right. I think the one that they're driving has only got police on the top. It hasn't got the blue and the red lights. You could be right. So it always has a I... single blue light on the top. has a single ah, okay. blue light on the top. So this is why, yeah, they're looking at that. And yeah, there's like one red, one blue. And they are absolutely... What? What? What, what is that? What I like is we're back to the, uh, the Mercedes estate car again. It's that. Driving, yeah, ar- driving around a country lane with no headlights on. I think, oh, this is going to get interesting. Yes. Straight off the cliff and into the sea. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> And then that would be like a typical British film of the 1960s, because that's what would happen to the baddies. True enough. But no, they do. They reverse down the country lane to get away from these lights, this supposed UFO. Uh-huh. They roar down the country lane in reverse, which is quite a good shot, actually, if it, yeah. to be honest. Um, and they're all ready to write the letter to Arthur Clarke and his mysterious world. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that annoyed me a little bit because I, I thought, well, to be fair, I know you're bungling, but nobody's that thick, surely? Yeah, that's yeah, that was my point. I think bungling is one thing, but now this is just stupidity. Yeah. Um, which yeah. would have worked 40 years prior, um, but doesn't now. And I have no, one right. other point. Um, this film has its very own Wilhelm scream, gentlemen. Ooh. It's the car skidding noise because right. every time a car skids, not necessarily just theirs, but mm-hmm. the the Mercedes, the 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 Jeep, the bus, they all have the same skidding sound effect to the point right. that they couldn't find a longer one for a longer skid. They just yeah. played the skid twice. I was thinking back when they pulled up outside um, outside Roy Kinnear's stately home, and you can hear the handbrake go on, and the doors mm-hmm. open, and, and this camera's about like forty foot away from the car, and I'm like. Brian and the Foley department has been working all hours day and night on this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's why he's only got one skid sound effect. And put that in again. And, of yes. course, remember, Val Guest started his directing career in the early 1940s. Yeah. So 
he would have seen lots of changes, and it's quite clear, taking not a blind fucking bit of notice of them. <laughs> if you if you head on to YouTube, in fact, have a look in the show notes. There is um, there is a reel on YouTube of it. It's kind of like from the Canada Bullshit where they're promoting the film, and they go to what they lovingly refer to as behind-the-scenes footage, and we see Mr Guest uh, doing his directing work. And again, you're like, this is, this is a guy, he's working. I can I can tell that he's on set working. Everyone looks busy there. Yeah. Why isn't this film better? Anyway. Well, because <laughs> what I see is, I see a film industry do, going through the motions, but what's in front of the camera is shit, and there's nobody there representing that. But you've got hard-working fair. people of the of the British film industry who've been doing this forever. Yeah, you know, shooting at Elstree, Boreham Wood, Pinewood, all the everywhere, all the stu- Shepperton, all the studios, just going through the motions of another film. I mean, yeah, to be yeah, fair, yeah. they are working, but you're right; it's another day in the office for them. They're just yeah. <laughs> so it turns out the the tunnel at the beach, which the smugglers are using to get the paintings out to sea and out of the country, leads to the storage cellar of the police station slash shop. Yeah. Um, yeah. When they finally work this out, Roy Kinnear reveals himself as the baddie. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, quite. Karen and Ball go off to investigate, and Chief Constable Eric Sykes, who so far has been playing the part like he hasn't seen a script, um, he has the yes. pair of them as down with being involved with the criminals. All of this happens in the dark. It really does. It really I does. I swear to yeah, God, yeah. the <clears throat> only reason this got into cinemas is because rank film distributors knew that more than half of this film can't be watched in your living room if there's any light source other than the television. <laughs> yep. 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 Absolutely that. And not only that, we get the longest car chase in the history oh, of film. Indeed. Considering we can't see it, yes. <laughs> but but prior chase. to that... Yeah. Again, it's just sound effects. <laughs> yes, yes. Prior to that, it's Condor Man again. Yeah. Because Cannon and Ball are handcuffed together. Yep. On we, we, We're on fast level 10 here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so I'm on the ceiling at this point. I can't see what's going on, but I know they're handcuffed together because there was a shaft of moonlight. You know what? I, I expect that. I expect that level of slapstick in this film. I'll give it a pass for that. That's fine. Anyway, this car chase goes on. Now... This is interesting. As you say correctly, it's in the dark. Yeah. We can't see what's going on. So in our mind, this is the best thing we've ever seen, this. Yeah. There's a bit of, it comes a bit of an abrupt end at some point where they, they, they're in the motorbike and sidecar. Given to them by comedy legend Arthur English and his pig joke. Singular. Uh-huh. I love the fact that he's got a pig in the sidecar. It's just so <laughs> random. It's beautiful. Exactly. Anyway, Cannonball commandeer this motorbike and sidecar. And off they go. It comes to an abrupt end because they crash. They fall out of the motorbike and sidecar. It's now daylight. Yeah. Yes, that snap cut. You know, it's like, oh, we'll be, you know, we'll be all right. And then you snap cut to daylight, and there they are, asleep against one another on the. The bike. dawn has been slowly creeping in when we it cut has. to the other characters. For Cannon and Ball, it's just like the lights come on. I literally felt like I'd been sat up all night yes. watching this car chase because. <laughs> So anyway, it's revealed that Suzanne Danielle isn't just acting appallingly in one role here. She's getting double bubble by being the girl one out of the baddies as well. Yeah. That's right. And she's sitting in the car with Roy Kinnear. And my mind went straight back to that episode of Punchlines that we did where those two were on the same team. Yeah. 
Now, this uh, episode, the, the episode of Punchlines is from 1981, so there's a good chance that they've filmed Boys in Blue by that point. So again, you've got the yeah. two of them sitting on set, reminiscing about the marvellous time they had. Lenny Bennett would say something, we'd be like, <clears throat> we're film stars, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Bless them. So Kinnear's bang to rights, and the the film ends? Well, it almost does. Firstly, I mean, it's almost like that famous Batman scene with the nuns, with the bomb and all that thing. All of a sudden, a convenient bus garage. Yes. That's right. Yes, they steal a, a bus. A convenient bus garage that apparently is in a built-up area that hasn't existed up until now. Yeah. <laughs> and then right. a convenient racetrack with lots of Leyland cars on it going the other yes. way. I mean... <laughs> It's got to be some sort of sponsorship deal. I bet somewhere there's a there's a tatty cinema card saying, you know, even Cannon and Ball drive British Leyland like no fucker else in this country. Gal and get one now. So here's a Cannon and Ball. They steal this bus, still handcuffed together. Um, a huge green... I would imagine it's a Leyland. Everything else has been. Uh, with a massive advert for Rothman's King Size on the side. Those were the days. Um, and they follow Roy Kinnear and Suzanne Danielle in their Jeep, still towing their speedboat for reasons that they probably yeah. mentioned in the script, but I couldn't focus on words by that point. And yeah, we get we get this high-speed chase filmed in the Dorset countryside, and suddenly, yes, they're on this racetrack. I, I haven't looked it up. I don't know. I don't know where that is. It's probably a car park at Elstree for all I know. Um, yeah. Why are they still towing the speedboat with the artworks in the back? That's a bit of a giveaway. They even mention it in the script. They're here. There's someone towing a speedboat. Oh, we haven't got time to pull them over. I think there's an. I think there's an airfield, a redundant airfield near uh, to okay. Elstree Film Studios because where they shot the prisoner and things like that, with the long runway. So that's probably what they used. But the um, the paintings they fit inside a couple of bin bags. Just put them in the jeep. Yep. Just drive the jeep. This incidentally is the same jeep that we see in the traffic jam at the start of the film. They don't Indeed. give a shit about switching vehicles at this point. It's slapdash, that's what it is. No magic car wash for this. Bungling criminals with bungling policemen. It must be a <laughs> British film from 1982. A film, I might add, that has never had the sort of honesty time or the harsh time or the, you know, the, the sort of pensive, the, the honesty minutes that uh, Perry and Croft used to call it in their comedies. There's only one moment where Tommy keeps saying that he thinks that Bobby's useless. Right, um, yeah. But that's even that's broken up. There's nothing, you know. That's like thirty seconds. Oh There's yeah, the structure here is appalling. To... Oh yeah, <laughs> the structure. What do you mean here? <laughs> the entire film. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, when I say here, I mean the film. <laughs> I died after the open titles. <sighs> so yes, then the uh, on the racetrack, the jeep crashes into the bus. The baddies are arrested. Two of them, anyway. And that's the end, because someone at rank has decided that this film absolutely cannot go over 90 minutes. Yes, exactly. I can almost hear the words, enough's enough. Yeah. I can almost hear the words, put the fucking song on, put the song on, get the song on. There's probably some sort of extra tax liability if they get to 91 minutes, so they're like, that's it. Yes, over the quarter, that's it. And then they've got to make an 89-minute film to compensate the next one. <laughs> And then our heroes walk off into the sunset victorious, yep. which is what, what all heroes do. Woo, 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 woo. Yes, suspended from their jobs, and clearly nothing that ever happened in that entire scene exists anymore. It's just like it vanished. It's like evaporated. There's no people there. What happened to the people on the bus? 
I will also point out that the sunset they walk into is precisely the kind of desaturated grey that you'd only get in a 1982 British film. It's very Agreed. true, yeah. And they don't even <laughs> it, get it, to it. That's the other thing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true enough. That's true enough. And we do indeed get the full theme tune. Um, we do. Boys in Blue. Again. Sung by the gentlemen themselves. Yep, the other ten minutes of the Ed Welsh session that there was actually money for. Yes. So as noted earlier... Several times. This is a retooling of 1939's Ask a Policeman. Um, I think 40 years is a respectful time to leave it between versions, considering they share mm-hmm. a writer. In fairness to Cannon and Ball, this is precisely the sort of mid-tier farce that the likes of John Cleese and Steve Coogan have made a secondary career out of bringing to the silver screen. It's just that here, it's not very well done. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. That being the case, how many pegs are you going to place upon the line? Well... Boys in Blue has this air of a West End farce where the whole cast are improvising and no one's been told what the story's supposed to be. <laughs> to their credit, I think that Cannon and Ball genuinely are trying here. They're just not cut out for this and the writing isn't strong enough to give them the support they need. Three out of nine. How about yourself, Mr Bognops? I just thought it was poor. I thought it was poor. Cannon and Ball look very uncomfortable, not in a theatre or on TV. Um, it was the dying gasp of a great comedy director's film career he made Will Hayes' film sensational and memorable and he signed up for this shit one out of nine <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. well it's like the Lilliput Lane of films you know it's a tiny little community that doesn't actually it's like the house in Rainbow the rooms don't make sense joined together the village doesn't make sense that it appears to be you get a, a beautiful long shot of the police station and then apparently that backs onto smuggler's cove you never hear the sea where the fuck is it <laughs> i think i think brian in the foley department has got enough to do <laughs> <laughs> yep i think that sounds like it to me but also you know cannon and ball the, the only thing i would say in conclusion to my one out of nine my disastrous score is that cannon and ball were not must watch for our family in front of the telly mm. at the time but there was something that would be on and you'd watch it and yeah. you'd think oh, okay it's all formulaic it's all kind of the same and that's okay and that's what comes to me with this film oh it's all right you know put it on but actually watching it now and thinking i'm not surprised there were all these bbc news stories at the time and they're all on youtube if you go and have a look uh And they're all on certain streaming sites, if you want to go and look, where the British film industry was on its arse. Unfortunately, this is part of the reason why. One out of nine. (laughs) So, Dr Velvet, can you give us a score which will raise the collective ranking for this to a number that you can't just count on one hand? No. (laughs) Good work. To coin a phrase, I can see what they were trying to do. But what we get here is flawed, outdated comedy with poor production visuals that distracted from any sort of humour they were trying to present. Right. Mind, it's filmed in Eaton Bray, which is where my mother was born, as okay. I mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> so, one peg for Eaton Bray and three for what I could actually see of the film. Okay. Four pegs in total. Okay, okay. fair play, fair play. Well, that's the thing, I, I couldn't hear it. There's the baddie in all of this, so I should be you like have, Suzanne Danielle and basically wear gigantic geps and have mumps. See, I couldn't hear this because part of me constantly had the feeling that there's a better version to be made. 
But then the other part of me remembered that there already had been. It was in 1939. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh-huh. But the thing is, do yeah. they do the next sort of big hopscotch step and get Ant and Deck to do it again now? Oh, God. Yes. Please do. With a score yes, by Hans I think, Zimmer, directed by that. Steven Spielberg. Do that, because I think Ant and Deck deserve that. <laughs> we'll get letters yeah. now. But the question... Dr. Velvet, the question that everyone has been pigeoning to ask is how many steps would it take you to yodel up the mountain from this Cannon and Ball film, given that our last series covered an episode of Cannon and Ball which actually starred Peggy Mount? I could do this in one. This outing of preposterous policing showcases our very own John Pertwee, who starred in 1963's Ladies Who Do under the auspices of... Thank you for reminding me I'd have been searching with myself all day. Tremendous. Tremendous. A level of efficiency that this film does not deserve. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And what about yourself, Mr Blackout? How many steps is it going to take you to yodel past Smuggler's Cove up the mountain? I can also do it in one. Oh! God. Well, this chapter of lackadaisical law enforcement stars none other than the lugubrious Eric Sykes, who was in 1965's One Way Pendulum alongside the formidable Peggy Mount. Oh, get hold of this. Brilliant. Can't say fairer than that. Brilliant. Excellent, excellent. And Mr Bognops, having put on your favourite pair of yodelling clogs, how many steps is it going to take you to yodel up the mountain? I shall match my score and do it in a unbelievably bungling one step. Well, this episode of Farcical Flatfooting features the one and only Arthur English, who also cropped up in the Once Upon a Time episode Buttons along with Peggy Mount. Since you bought that yesterday, I'm breaking it in for her. Very good. Lovely. Arthur English has a pig. E-I-E-I-O. He keeps that like pig it. in his bike. E-I-E-I-O. But that is that, gentlemen. And just before I go off and listen to the official television soundtrack score of The Good Life, Blackout's <laughs> got your socials. Yes, thanks once again for swinging by. If you'd like to get in touch to defend Cannon and Bull or pitch remaking the film again, you can email PeggyManPod at gmail.com or we are at PeggyManPod on Twitter. It would be lovely if you left us a five-star rating on Spotify or the same, plus a short review to go with it on Apple Podcasts. And why not pop us a like on the Facebook, which is what all the cool middle-aged people are doing. If all of that sounds too exhausting, you can go to PeggyManPod.com, check out the show notes for Boys in Blue and to browse all of our other episodes. Alternatively, if you want something that's a little less piss-taking, you can go to worldofblackout.co.uk where there are words about this film. It's as simple as that. It really is. Mr Ozzy Bognops, thank you once again for your priceless presence. Yes, thank great you so much. pleasure, gents. Lovely to see you both, and thank you. Always a pleasure. Never a bore. We'll see you very soon. And, dear listener, hopefully you'll join us again soon. Until the next time, keep, keep bungling. bungling. Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments and television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Peggy Mount Pod.com.